Thank you, BJ. I haven't really addressed the church since we've been, Betsy and I have been back, so I, I did want to mention that we, we had a wonderful time on vacation, and I wanted to share with you some captured conversations that took place between our children and our grandchildren. Uh, we're all together in one house for a week, you can, and you can probably guess who is saying what. For example, can I have ice cream for breakfast? Let's play the quiet game. <laughs> Come back to the table and finish your lunch. Don't drink your cousin's milk. Let's play the quiet game. Don't spit on your cousin. Let's play the quiet game. Don't spit in your cousin's milk. That man is fat. It's not kind to say that later on. That man is grumpy, and by grumpy, I mean fat. <laughs> or my three grandsons on receiving really cool mechanical dragons. Jack, I'm naming mine fire. Nate, I'm naming mine flame. Elijah. I'm naming mine Tom. <laughs> Actually, we had a blast. It's just, it's fun to watch your children grow into maturity and then nurture their children into living out biblical principles. And that's the goal of our spiritual journey as children of God. We're to move from immaturity as newborn baby Christians on into full maturity as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, representing him before a hurting and watching world and reproducing that in others. That, I mean, that's, that's the goal. Now, Romans 8 is the map for that journey. It begins with the work of the Son. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. It begins with the work of the Son. It proceeds with the work of the Spirit in sanctification through that chapter. And as we've said before, this could even be quantified because the word Spirit occurs in Romans 1 through 7 only four times. But in Romans chapter 8, more than 20 times, more than any single chapter in the New Testament, it is the chapter of walking by the Spirit. The pronoun I, which occurs uh, over 30 times in chapter 7 is almost absent from chapter 8. See, it's all about the Spirit. So it begins with the work of the Son. It proceeds with the work of the Spirit. And Romans 8 ends with the eternal protection of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It begins no condemnation and it ends no separation. Nothing will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if, if you get what I've said so far, Romans 8, the Son, the Spirit, the whole triunity of God, the whole point is, it's all of God. All of this is all of God from beginning to end. And, and if someone were to accuse me and say, Gary, you don't have it in you to earn salvation. Gary, 
you don't have it in you to live the Christian life, I would say, you're so right. I really don't. I don't. And, and that's the point. All of this is all of God. Romans 8 develops this. And Lewis has introduced us to this in verses 1 through 11. Uh, with several principles. And I'm going to pick up with verses 12 and 13 today. But here's my warning. Here's my warning. I'm going to stop right in the middle of an argument. As it develops. And, and, and that's just a little bit frustrating to me. Uh, I know there is therefore now no frustration to those who are in Christ Jesus. But there are so many strands of truth that entwine together to weave the fabric of Romans 8 that Lewis and I have two problems. On the one hand, neglecting the nuggets that are embedded all through this chapter as we race on through. But on the other hand, pacing ourselves so slowly, gathering all those nuggets that we lose the big picture. So... Betsy and I uh, went for some walks on the beach uh, on vacation, and uh, those walks had two goals. For Betsy, it was to look, or it has been, to look for sea glass on the beach, to look for sea glass. Uh, and, and for Gary, the goal was to walk as far as we could, as long as we could, in the time that we had. So those were both good goals, right? Today, I'm going to spend time in just two verses and i'm going to leave the argument before it's fully developed but there's some sea glass here that we need to stop and pick up and take a look at and marvel at and 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 some things we'll also be bringing in from other passages or other tributaries but all point in the same direction and i want you to notice that verse 12 where we're starting in romans chapter 8 verse 12 Verse 12 contains the word brethren. That's how he addresses them. He's talking to brethren. He could have left out that term. He intentionally inserted that term because he is joining himself with his fellow Christians alongside them. He is not talking over them. He is talking about the fact that we, we are under obligation. And Paul knew that he had not arrived spiritually at whatever goal that might might be in philippians 3 he says this not that i have already obtained it or have already become perfect but i press on so that i may lay hold of that for which i also was laid hold of by christ jesus brethren i do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind and i'll tell you what he had a lot of baggage in his life from persecuting christians so it was a good thing that he was a new creature and he was able to forget what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, I haven't arrived. I certainly haven't arrived. So we together are under obligation. What he's about to describe to us, this is for me, Paul. And this is also for Peter over there. And it's 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 for James over here and it's for Lewis and it's for Gary and it's for Betsy and it's for Trudy and it's for Mark and it's for John and and whatever name you're going to put in that blank. It's for us. So here's what I want us to do. I want us to gather together to make sure that we're hearing what he is saying to us collectively. And he begins with these two words in, in my version. So then. 
So then. And, and those two words call our attention to the fact that what he is about to say is based on what has gone before. And I want you to think with me about that. So then, based on what? Well, verse 1, there, there, we are under no condemnation if we are in Christ Jesus. And the phrase in Christ Jesus is a description of the fact that we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ Not in works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We can't earn our salvation. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. And once we place our faith in Jesus Christ, while the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Wages, what's earned? Free gift, not earned, given by God's grace through faith. When we believe in Jesus, we are in Christ, and therefore there is no condemnation. So then, based upon that, the, the, the fact that there is no sin that you will ever commit in the future for which Christ has not died. It will not separate you from him. The penalty for whatever sin is ahead has been paid on the cross. So then, based on the fact that there's no condemnation, and, and, and in fact, even based on verse 2, um, Maybe I better find my place in Romans 8. There we go. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So the law has set you free from the law. So then, no condemnation. So then, the law has set you free from the law. Huh? Well, as you read the text, there are two different laws here. And one wins over the other. There's an old analogy for this, and it's simplistic, but it's true. The law of gravity versus the law of aerodynamics. When you're flying in a plane, there's a sense in which the law of aerodynamics sets you free from the law of gravity. And as long as you abide in the plane, that which sets you free, as long as you abide in that, you're not subject to the law of gravity in the same way. And both operating principles are called law. The law of sin and death in verse two refers to earning our salvation by means of good works, by being a good person. One of the one of the men in my growth group asked a a very good question that some of you have probably been thinking about. We've addressed it before here. Can the unbeliever do anything good before God? And the answer is yes. Unbelievers can be wonderful people, moral people. But they're still unbelievers. They remain unsaved because before God, even a good person is not the same as a righteous person. That goodness is a horizontal idea, but righteousness is a vertical idea. So uh, Nicodemus was a good man, but he needed to know that he needed to be born from above. Right. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the law of the spirit of life has set us free From the law of sin and death. So the law has set you free from the law. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It is finished. I love it when Jesus says those words in a way that means 
It is a completed act that has ongoing permanent results. It stands finished. The law has set us free. The law of, of, of the spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That is what God has done for us. But that's not all. Look at verses 5 and 6, and we're going to leap ahead from that to verse 12. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. And then down in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. So, you know, here we are under obligation, not to the flesh, but to the spirit. Now, this doesn't mean we deny our senses in the sense that, you know, everything related, it's related to the body is wrong. That, that's not what that means. He's not talking about our bodies in that way. We don't deny the great physical pleasures of this life that are wonderful gifts from God. He doesn't mean flesh in that sense. Every once in a while, I like to bring in uh, one of the older um, church fathers to just have you hear what he had to say about this kind of thing. And this is from John Chrysostom in, in, uh, in, uh, uh, who wrote at the end of the third century. Uh, and he was writing about Romans 8.12. This is what he said. Once again, Paul is not speaking here about the nature of the flesh. For in many ways, we are indebted to that. We have to give it food, warmth, rest, medicine, clothing, and a thousand other things. In order to show us that this is not what he is talking about, Paul adds the words, to live according to the flesh. The flesh is not to take charge of our life. The flesh must follow, not lead. And it must receive the laws of the Spirit, not seek to control us. Unquote. Isn't that well said? That is what the law does. What Paul does mean is that we still have indwelling sin. We still have sin natures and they will remain with us until we're in God's presence. And that's always a struggle. What he's saying is don't step outside the airplane. OK, remain in that in which. You are protected or you'll fall. At the moment we were saved and he's talking to brethren, right? Brethren, God gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and to empower us. Now, if the Holy Spirit is to empower us for witness, because that's what Acts 1.8 says, when the Spirit comes, you'll receive power after my Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, right? And he, you're going to witness for me in all Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You'll receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So if the Holy Spirit empowers us for witness, then all the more the Holy Spirit will empower us to live. For the Lord. And that's what Romans 8 is about. Now, Lewis has highlighted the verses from John 14 and John 16. Um, Jesus gave three uh, three discourses, three large discourses in in the, the four Gospels, um, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives, and the third one is the upper room, the three extended sections of teaching. And the upper room, what's called the upper room discourse, is really John 13 
through almost to the end of John 17, if you include Jesus' high priestly prayer. That long section, all of that was in the upper room with his disciples the night before Jesus was about to go to the cross. Now, once you get the picture here, Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says, I'm going to be leaving you. I'm not going to be with you. But when I leave you, it is a good thing for you. I, we don't think that way. We think, no, if Jesus were here, that would be better. We could point, you know, he could be interviewed. If Jesus were here, that would be a better thing. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, it is better for you that I go to be with my father. And I'm going to send you another comforter. And he uses the word, the Greek word, another, that means another of the same kind. I'm going to send you another of the same kind, comforter. However, here is going to be the difference. I can only be with you, but he will be in you. He will indwell you and he will guide you into truth. And he will take what is mine and will show it to you. He will disclose it to you. He will disclose it to you. He will disclose it to you. He says that three times. So the, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying to the apostles, it's better for you that I'm not here because you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to indwell you. He's going to be your power supply. Now, there's so much to say about that. But he's going to guide you into all the truth. Think of it this way. God has a plan of divine handoff, sort of a passing of the spiritual baton. The purpose of the Old Testament law was to be a tutor to guide us to Christ. Galatians 3 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to guide us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So the Old Testament law guided us to salvation. And there's a handoff here. The law guides us to Christ. But now that we are in Christ, the Holy Spirit takes over and guides us. As John 14 through 16 says, the spirit guides us as we submit to his leadership. The first guiding was to salvation. The second guiding is to sanctification. Is it possible for us not to submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. And everybody here should have joined in that chorus. <laughs> yes, it is. That's the believer who struggles in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not want to do. Romans seven eighteen and 19. So, yes, it is possible and, and we live there at times in our walk with the Lord. But God has bigger plans for us than that. And Romans 8 does not hesitate to lay this out in terms of duty because he puts it this way. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. The term under obligation is rare. It's only used four times in the New Testament, all by Paul. One of them is in chapter 1, verse 14, where Paul says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, that is under obligation to preach the gospel. And, and his obligation to preach the gospel, as we read that passage earlier in our studies, that made perfect sense. Of course, that makes sense. And, and Paul is under obligation. 
But so are we. We are together with him under obligation. And, and first he states what our obligation is not. Because verse 12 continues. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And this is emphatically stated in the Greek text. That according to the flesh to be living. Not according to the flesh to be living. And, and again, don't misunderstand the term flesh. Every sin that you've ever committed was done in the flesh. Not necessarily by the flesh, but in the flesh. But the term flesh is broader than just the physical. It includes our desires, our actions, our words, our attitudes, and so on. Any mental sins of pride or lust or whatever mental sin it may be takes place first in your brain. And then those sins are expressed through your body if they don't stop there. And it's all that whole complex is called the flesh. And in Christ, you have been set free from that bondage. Look again at Romans seven twenty four. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And the answer is in the next, next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because of what Christ did on the cross, we have been set free from any bondage or any obligation to live according to the flesh. Now we can not live that way. Verse 13 says, For if according to the if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you've been set free from the downward pull of the gravity of sin. You're not under obligation to the flesh because the wages of sin's death and the death was paid by Jesus on the cross. Jesus paid it all. Therefore, sin no longer has authority over you. You've got a different obligation. If you're living according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you are putting to death, to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. And he adds that phrase in there that sort of destroys the symmetry because verse 13 ought to read this way. If it were symmetrical, if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And he adds that three word phrase, if by the spirit, by the spirit is what's added here, because the spirit is the one person of the Godhead who makes the difference in this. Now, back to verse 13, what is you must die mean? Well, physical death hangs over everyone. If you're unsaved. Both physical death and then eternal death await you. That is a fact. The person who wallows in their sin with themselves on the throne of their lives, the person who's not interested in repentance, in forgiveness, in fellowship, or any spiritual growth or any spiritual change, even when they say, well, I went forward at age six. How can that person be a true believer? And even if a true believer. Is ensnared in some addictive sin. At some point. They will come to the end of themselves and cry out with Romans seven. Wretched man that I am who will set me free. Like the like the prodigal son did. But Gary, I fall and I mess up. My response, welcome to the club. So do I. 
J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. And this book was written in 1839, 1839. Listen to what he said. Are we conscious of two principles within us contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of the of war in our inward man? Well, let us thank God for it. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. In other words, do you feel the struggle within you? Then good. <laughs> good. You should. That, that you can infer from that that, we are, that you're spiritually alive. That you haven't become spiritually stagnant. And that you're in the process. And, and that your goal, as Hebrews 6.1 puts it, let us press on to maturity. Here's, a, here's another way of looking at it. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. And 1 Corinthians 6 and then 9 describes that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that is the flesh, right? The temple of the Holy Spirit. Don't you want to keep the temple clean? Don't you want to keep clean that which is the habitation of the Holy Spirit. You're not housekeeping for yourself. You're housekeeping for the sake of God's glory. When you clean up through the Spirit's aid, not for yourself, but for Him. We are slaves of God. And, and this, is where, <laughs> this is where we're going to stop in Romans 8, because I'm not done yet, but we're stopping in the middle of this, and, and it breaks my heart <laughs> but romans eight thirteen lays out our responsibility if you don't kill sin sin will kill you okay exactly how do we put to death the deeds of the body we need time for a long 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 discussion on that many people are looking for the right formula for holiness and there's some secret to Christian living and going to go to this conference and get this secret of Christian living. And no, no, it's not there. It's uh, I went to that conference and I was excited for two weeks, but it's this conference over here and this has got the secret to Christian living. And no, just, that's not quite it. But I, you know, I thought it was. But, you know, the week after that, I fell flat on my face after the emotion was gone. Those those precious words that from the retreat that conjured up the original emotion no longer do the trick anymore for me. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make any sense to you? Are we on the same page here. This the idea of okay. There's one more secret. There's one you know, this conference, that seminar, and and then life goes on, and you confess the same sin for the five thousandth time, and you say, Lord, I'm. And you're embarrassed not only that you committed it, but you're embarrassed to go back to him for forgiveness for it again. So. You begin to think, I think God's probably sick of hearing from me. And if there's any severance there between you and God over that, that's Satan's plan, by the way. So. Have you ever noticed that it's hard to have holiness as a goal for your life and maintain a strong ego. 
And there are a lot of spiritual rabbit trails out there. Hey, do you want to know the secret for spiritual victory? What you need is to go to your bookstore and buy this book. And that will give you the victory that you need. It's the Spirit-Filled Life Bible. It unveils all God's fullness in all of God's Word. It has Spirit-empowering features. It's destined to make an impact in your life. I'm reading from it, from the ad. Interesting, it doesn't say predestined to make an impact. Anyway. It unleashes God's power in every area of your life. Now, what's different about this study Bible that's being advertised here and any other study Bible that's out there? It's not a new translation. It's a regular translation that they've added their notes to. What's the difference between this study Bible and every other study Bible that's out there that you can get at the bookstore? The difference is the explanatory words added by men. In other words, the observations of men are what God depends upon to, quote, unleash God's power in every area of your life. That's just wrong-headed. Now, this Bible and its accompanying notes may be just fine, but the ad is almost blasphemous. Is, is there some secret, hidden, seven surefire steps to sanctification program out there that I'm missing? No. The Bible describes the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ in several ways. And we'll be talking about these in months ahead. For example, um, Romans 8.13, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. That's one. Colossians 3, reckon yourselves dead to sin. It's to reason yourselves dead to sin. Reckon, consider. Colossians 3, 10 through 14. Put aside the deeds of the flesh. And it lists them. And put on Christ. So put aside, put on. Put off, put on. Ephesians 5, 18. Here's another one. Be filled with the Spirit. That's a command. You. You. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, how do you fulfill that command? Okay, let's go for another one. 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline yourself for godliness. I like that because discipline is the word gymnazo or gymnasium comes from it. Exercise yourselves for godliness. I love that one. Um. How about this one? Work out your own salvation. Doesn't say work for, but work out. It's in you. Work it out. The verse continues, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Here's another one. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. And in fact, submit to God. And then the next verse, draw near to God. So that's, that's the formula. Where, where's the, I'm missing the formula. Where's the formula? Study the word. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So 
if you if or I love Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ richly inhabit you. Richly dwell within you. So the word of God. Well, here's the formula. Put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians six ten and following. And then after that, it says, be strong and stand firm. Or Luke nine twenty three, take up your cross daily and follow me. Or flee the devil, pursue righteousness, fight the good fight. First Timothy six or seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. Matthew six thirty three. Or love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Luke ten twenty seven. So which one is the formula? We're going to talk about these things over the next weeks and months in various degrees as we continue through Romans 8. But I will say... That, well, let me put it this way. Is there something to be learned from the absence of a formula? Is there something to be learned from that? That God doesn't say, this is it. Here are the seven surefire steps. Is there something also to be learned, not only from the absence of that, but from the presence of the variety of ways that the spiritual life is described. Because we are such a variety of people. Is there something to be learned from that? I think there is. Now, we're going to talk about these things over the next several weeks and months, but I I will say that all of these terms have four bedrock principles in common. Number one, the Word of God. Number two, the Holy Spirit of God. And those can't be separated because the word is illuminated by the spirit who enacts the word. So the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God, a third bedrock principle that's a part of all this is prayer, communion with God. Scripture says we're to pray without ceasing. And we've talked about this before. When you awaken in the morning, you begin your day with prayer. You dethrone yourself. You have a coronation ceremony. You enthrone Jesus. Lord, you're you're on the throne of my life. In spiritual breathing, we inhale when we intake the word. We exhale in prayer. So. The Holy Spirit, the word of God, prayer. And this is something that's not explicitly stated, but it is it works its way through the argument of Hebrews. And, and the argument of First Thessalonians, First Corinthians 3 as well, and 2 and 3. And, and that is, here's the fourth thing. And this is not a formula, by the way. These are four points. Okay, not a formula. <laughs> here's the fourth thing. Time. There is no such thing as instant spirituality. Add water. No. That's not the way. Godliness takes time. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Run the race with endurance. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon while looking unto Jesus and don't get discouraged and quit the race. It is a it involves time. So the Holy Spirit, the word of God, prayer and time as you 
walk with the Lord and become more and more his. And remember, these are this is a to be continued thing. But remember, the focus of godliness is not on yourself and how you think you're doing. The focus of godliness is not on other Christians and how you think they are doing. The focus of godliness is not on the world and how awful it is doing by by contrast. The focus of godliness is on loving Jesus and living out Jesus' word before a watching and hurting world. And here's the thing. All of this, all of this, it's all of God. And when we come to the Lord's table, all of that, all of it, it's all of God. God has provided us the means of sanctification, but before that, he provided us the means of salvation. It's all of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus entered this world as a baby, grew, lived a sinless life, went to the cross to absorb into himself the sins of the world. That body, his flesh, is symbolized by the bread that we partake. This is my body, which is for you. And on the cross, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, slain before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God shed his blood in fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. He shed his blood for us. The blood is his death. And that is symbolized in the cup that we partake of. And that's why Jesus said, I want you to partake of this table, the bread and the cup, until I come. And I want you to remember me. I'm going to ask the men to come forward.